I, I like that connection to how the, the beginning of, of teaching is kind of like when you first start writing. I could see that because, you know, when I first started writing, I remember it was so funny because I wrote a little, like I wrote songs and I wrote shorter pieces. I remember sitting there talking about, you know, just the, how much I love books and wanting, I was like, you know what, I, maybe I could write a novel, right? And I just started kind of talking about it. And she was like, just do it. And I was like, oh, I didn't. I didn't realize that was something I could just do. From the mouths of people who don't take the time to see them for who they are and who'd rather be the student down with grades rather than lift them up with the work that matters. And I'm tired of hearing about these kids who don't share your values because your values are what put us here in the first place. And I don't know if you've looked around lately. When you trust these young minds to do what they're wired to do. The human brain is designed to learn. It is, it is literally built to get information, process it, and go forth from there. I don't know, social media is scary, right? Because it's new. And it's so, it's so manipulative. If we had more people looking for what's true rather than trying to push um, specific sides of an agenda, I think we'd be a lot farther in a lot of these hard conversations we're having. This is Ricky Ray. Welcome to the Curious Observer Podcast, exploring thoughts and creating a space within the overwhelm of the newfound virtual reality with the spirit of curiosity. Our next guest, I'm really excited to share how we met was quite the unique circumstance that perhaps if it was not the 20s could not happen. And I say this because it was through an Instagram story <laughs> promoted by none other than, I'm sure our next guest may agree. I'm curious what his thoughts are. Uh, if anyone is not familiar with who I'm about to mention, I would consider as the, the, the Albert Einstein of the 21st century pioneering through the exploration also of space and in, uh, through the, these roaring 20s, right? The economist, mathematician, just to name a few, Famously also just dubbed a, a collection of intellectuals as the intellectual dark web, Eric Weinstein. He was promoting our guest, his 200th podcast episode, talking about fixing the education system. My goodness, the caliber in which these two individuals exploring thoughts and really digging into the, the questions and the kinds of things that people talk about in education these days that feel largely ignored and left behind. And we just kind of have to accept it and endure and okay, next lesson plan. All right, let's just move on and never really get addressed. And I really suggest you guys stay tuned with that podcast. I want to ask him to plug that in. He is a father, husband, educator, author, by the way, book number three on the way. Stay tuned on that. I'm going to ask him to, to plug that in also podcast host of Teach Me Teacher podcast. Welcome, Jacob Chastain. How you doing, brother? Hey, man, I'm doing good. I like the the energy you bring. You know, we've we've talked, this is the first time I've been speaking like face to face, but we've yes. been back and forth and, uh, you know, you always got this, you always got the energy. So I'm here for it, man. Well, man, you know, it's, 
I think a lot of it is, you know, I, I'm sure the, re the reason you may recognize that is because you're an educator yourself and that flows through you just by nature, <laughs> would you say? Yeah, yeah, totally, man. I, I think half of what we do is, is the energy that we bring to our work. And I mean, we can't let, how do we expect kids to have energy if we don't, right? Oh man, amen to that because you can see it in their eyes when they're like, mm. And they're like, hey, 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 right over here, right over here. It's almost like you have to do like a little dance, but with, right. mind, with, <laughs> with the mind. <laughs> and, you know, I, I thought I would uh, kick it off a little bit with, uh, you know, showcasing the shirt. I think you would appreciate. Can you read it? Boom. That's right. Teaching is a work of heart. I believe it. I believe it. Yes, man. What, what comes to mind when you, when you hear that? I don't know. I, I think so. I don't know. I don't want to get too deep too early, but in, in – uh, it, there's a lot of professions that it takes a long time to kind of become it, right? Like, you know, we, we expect doctors to put in a lot of work to get where they're at and lawyers and just any number of these professions that serve a, a unique skill set in society. And teaching is one of those that is relatively easy to get into compared to something like being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. I would argue just as important, if not more important, but it's, it's fairly easy to get, go through, get your four-year degree, and then, you know, graduate with enough merit to either just get it in education or uh, have enough, ha have a good enough GPA so we can go to an alt cert uh, mm -hmm. specification uh, or not specification, certification. I, and here's the thing. I, I like that. Uh, I am alt certified. I didn't get my degree Same. in teaching um so i'm not this isn't coming from a superior standpoint my point is is because it is relatively easy in professional terms to get into uh, i think a lot of people get into it for the wrong reasons so when i think of you know teaching us from the heart what that really makes me think about is you know you can get into this profession but the the people that have the heart for it the people that understand what we're doing the people that can have a hard day where every kid seems to be disrespectful or disruptive. Mm -hmm. And then you go home and you're like, I can't wait to go back tomorrow. Right. Those, those educators are the ones that end up staying. But the, the reason why we have so much turnover and why most teachers don't last after five years is I think that thing where their heart wasn't in the right place and you're going to figure it out one way or another. Teaching isn't a job you stay in if your heart isn't in Immediately it. So tells I, you, yeah. That's right. Cause you, you know, like the, we've worked with people like this before. I've seen a lot. And there's no shame. I don't just like, there'd be no shame in me, like failing at a tryout for like the NBA or like the NFL or something like that. Like the people are going to shame me for that. But, and these people shouldn't be shamed either. I think people just need to, I think people like you and me need to do a better job at showing people that yes, this profession's great. And there's a lot of perks that come with it, but it's also some of the hardest work you'll ever do. And I think, unfortunately, people just don't realize that. Amen. You know, this is exactly why I wanted to in invite you to share your vibe because you're in the trenches. You're you're facing the future. You know, these kids, you know, it's not just something that you just do the job, you know, and with respects to all other jobs, by the way, no, no, mm -hmm. no, no by, by no means to say anything else to any of, of anything else. But specifically, right. the nature of this job is the facing of the future. And I think that's so important. I thought I would invite the, uh, I would invite you to share, you know, these three, these three ideas and 
uh, you know, on the last one, per, I, I, I feel that we can thread into the, the vortex of what can be in our share of, of vibe. And that is, uh, I sure. welcome you to share more about yourself, um, about your endeavors, and really your vision of today's virtual landscape. Oh, man. So, I mean, in terms of me, it's always awkward to give your own pitch, right? About kind of just who you are. I think I got the easiest, no, I got you. I think the easiest way to, uh, uh, to kind of get there is to understand that I am someone who is driven to do certain things because of the life I live. So growing up, I would say I was, you know, early on, I just basically, I lived in Texas my entire life. I had relatively a relatively normal life up to a point. I was just kind of middle-class suburban parents made decent money. You know, I never was without, but as I got older, I started realizing that there were things wrong in the house. And then as I got older and older and things just started clicking, you know, I realized that both my parents were addicted to drugs. My dad was abusive. Um, Most of those traits passed down to, uh, my siblings before me. So uh, would you say that it was it was invisible to you, not recognizable? It was just the nature of, and the patterns yeah. were were not something that you would be able to at that time pause and be like, "Hey, is that the thing that maybe I don't know if it? I don't know. If we should be." It was just a a full reception of what just reality as it as you're receiving. Yeah, I mean the to say that trauma was the norm isn't an over exaggeration, but I didn't know any difference. So I, like I said, you know, I was, uh, I lived a pretty comfortable life. There was no issues. Um, because of the parents I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of parental supervision. So, you know, my house was the ones that the friends came to, to get away with like, you know, playing like grand theft auto and stuff like that. You know, we just got to do whatever we want. And, um, just hang out and we didn't get into too much trouble or anything, but it was just one of those things. But as we got older and some of the family stuff, the facade, so to speak, started cracking, uh, my parents or my friend's parents started, you know, resisting people coming over more. So that, that was like cue number one, that things were kind of going wrong. And then a friend would come over and like, they'd be like, where's your mom at? And I'm like, I don't know. Like she just left and like, she would come back in the middle of the night. And there were things like that, that just started slowly cropping up as I was getting over. And feedback. Whole, yeah. Right. And eventually, you know, the dots started connecting, but it wasn't until I was older that I realized that I think one of the main reasons why, uh, I, I did decent, uh, once I kind of left school and, or decent as I was going up through school was because I had like all of these teachers that just took care of me in weird ways. Like I remember, hmm. um, I tell the story at the beginning of my book, teach me teacher, but it's, it's this story that, my parents so there was like one big fight that happened in my family that kind of drew them apart there was a lot of fights but there was one big one where my dad basically like just beat the crap out of my mom and mm. uh it was like this huge traumatic thing um that's it's a hard question to answer my uh, eight i don't know i think i was around 10 or 11 somewhere around there that blur um yeah yeah i mean i was in middle school so maybe a little bit older so 12 uh but we ended up hauling and moving out we left with my mom and we moved out to my this country school where I hung out for a little bit and then we ended up coming back but when I came back my fourth grade teacher sat me in the back of the room and she gave me this talk about 
this cloud. And she goes, Jacob, there's, there's that cloud up here and you can put whatever you want in there. You can just shove it all in there, whatever thoughts you have or whatever. And as a kid, I don't know why she's telling me this. My teacher just called me to the back of the room. She's telling me this stuff. I don't, I'm not connecting that she's giving me a life skill. And she basically said that you can go there and it needs to stay in there. And then one day when it's time to rain, it'll come out and it'll be fine. And it'll be, you know, nourishing, so to speak. And mm. as an adult, I look back on that and I was like, what she did, it, like some people might frown at like, oh no, like kids need to face their problems directly and everything like that. And maybe, maybe I should have, but what she gave me in that speech was a way to compartmentalize. So essentially what happened as I grew older, I was doing that naturally is I would just put the bad stuff over here and then I would go do work. And then anyone that knows this, once you put something away, you have to process it somehow, right? Some people wow. process it in negative ways. You, you found a to, chamber. That's right. They, people process, you know, a lot of, like a lot of my, like some of my siblings, they ended up processing in negative ways, right? They turn to, you know, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, uh, various other abuses. And I believe the reason why I sidestep some of those bad choices, so to speak, were, or some of those ways to cope was because my dad was a musician and I happened to be obsessed with music growing up. So there's old videos of me sitting in front of my dad's drum set with two sticks, you know, all the other kids are running around. I'm sitting there watching him play for hours. So I was playing, you know, inner Sandman on the drums. When I was like five and playing, you know, knocking on heaven's door from guns and roses when I was like seven. So and you, just knew, jamming you knew and the zone early on. Yeah, like that creative zone, right? Like it, I knew it was an outlet already because when my family was fighting, you know what I used to do? I would go out to the garage, crank the PA, turn Lincoln Park on, and then just start jamming in the garage like as loud as I could. So I was practicing a skill, but I was also letting all of this come out. Fast forward a few years, what I ended up doing is along with my discovery of love for books is I started writing, right? I joined bands early on and we wrote How old were you here? Um, it was probably 14. Okay. around then you know and so, so when you had that talk with that teacher you were that was in that time frame when you came back so you were like 12 13 yeah, I was like, so like I was that like fourth grade yeah oh. yeah well so it was early on so he didn't i said it was middle school but we it was around fourth grade when that happened and then middle school was when the family actually broke apart right right and I'm, if i may interject just real quick i'm just very sure. curious it's just it's just like ah oh, wow uh, i'm do you remember by chance what may have triggered the teacher to pull you aside and share that like I imagine like I imagine a student of mine who may not recognize they might be blurting out their emotional pain that's reflective mm -hmm. of you know of social uh you know uh, uh I guess buttons that are in the know of now and they mm -hmm. say so they're called and the, within the know they know what that means uh deliberately to kind of create a separation from the teacher and it's like, oh, I recognize something's happening. Hey, 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 come here. And I, I call the student and place, you know, here's a common corner or something like that, you know, and share an insight, you know, uh, and, and I notice that they're listening. I wonder, is that something that may have happened for you? Or is that something that the teacher perhaps you think may have known before you walked in? Uh, it was probably, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both. I would imagine the biggest factor was my mom was a, uh, she, you know, she was like one of the like lunch ladies, like she didn't like do the food, but she was like, like a lunch monitor, right? She would just walk around and like monitor the kids in the cafeteria. So they knew who she was. And I imagine when I left, I was gone for like a month or so. And then we came back. Oh. I imagine some of that uh, probably came back for that. 
Wow. So you were saying, uh, so you picked up writing. Uh, so there's yeah. like a momentum generated from uh, these, these events, uh, these, these stepping stones, perhaps, that mm -hmm. were becoming uh, visible to you, uh, would you say? Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I've learned growing up, but also as a teacher when I'm working with my kids in writing, is a lot of kids, when, when younger people are processing, a lot of the time they don't know what they're processing. Right. This is why you get the, the phrases that I love to say and that I've none of these are my coined phrases. But the, one of my favorite ones is from Spencer Kagan, where he says every child demonstrating a behavior is demonstrating a need. And those and that could be anything. Right. It could be any type of behavior. We think only negative, but that's not true. Uh, but so I in this term of this this feeling of processing I was doing a lot of this without realizing it and then you know I just as I looked back at other people and maybe students who have had similar issues or just people that I've known I think a lot of people get trapped in the cycle of trauma and the in the cycle of abuse and the cycle of just kind of like this self-loathing that happens in families like this is that they never find a healthy outlet right? The people mm. that get trapped are the ones that don't find that connection. And what that connection, what drives that could be anything, man. Like I think out of, I'm the, the youngest of four kids and I'm by far, I'm the only one that's gone to college. I'm, you know, I, I, I there's a lot of firsts that came through me. So I wouldn't say it was destiny because that's kind of rude of destiny to kind of, you know, to, to not to play favorites in such a way. So I, I but you're recognizing luck, but that certain patterns uh, lure to further unlockings that, further made other patterns available for that grab that created a natural gravitational pull. And, and it, it's almost as though it was not of your own will, but it was always your will in deciding towards it. But it was, it was only available because the, those, uh, those stepping stones were placed in such a way that were understood that it, cr it created sight ahead. Would you say something like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that enough things were around me uh, that gave me a lot of options. I'm very uh, fortunate in that way. And I think the biggest one was teachers. The I had so many teachers like teachers to like I, I cite them by name. I write about so many in that book. Um, which was why it was fun to talk to uh, Eric Weinstein because he he had the opposite uh, experience. So it was funny oh, to I noticed. Kind of, but uh it, so, but like the, the teachers, like my third grade teacher taught me like the, the power of song and my first grade teacher taught me the power of understanding people's culture. She was very focused. I remember that in kindergarten, um, fifth grade and fourth grade, I had a, my first male teacher and he taught me like, he was the first one that showed me Lord of the Rings. And he was, you know, he was reading the Hobbit to us before the Hobbit movies came out and he was doing the Gollum voice and, you know, he, but oh, that, like, I love that that was such a, a pivotal moment for me because it showed me that not every book is a dead dog book. You know, I can also pick up books and go fight dragons and shoot magic. And uh, that, so that opened up reading for me. And then middle school is kind of a blur. Sorry, all my middle school teachers. That was when everything was really going wrong, but then things <laughs> pick up back in high school. You know, I had uh, Miss Hammer, who is my, she's still my mentor today. She ended up being my academic coach at my first campus. She ended up being an assistant principal at my first campus. I've worked under her. I've worked with her. Uh, wow. She, she has guided me in more ways than one. So all of that. So my creativity 
given to me by my dad combined with great education that gave me a variety of experiences to kind of figure out where I wanted to be. And then um, honestly, a drive to make my mark for some reason. And I think some of that comes from my dad, you know, being a performer as a kid, I'm sure it was ingrained in me that attention was positive because I would perform it like, you know, like all the adults are drinking and partying and stuff. And I'm the guy, I'm the kid with the cool drum set. And everyone's like, yeah, cause I'm actually kind of good. So, right. They can actually, they can support it for longer than yes, 10 minutes. Yes. So, but that, you know, you multiply all of this together, right? You get someone like me who is incredibly passionate about my work because I was practically saved by the work I'm doing now. Uh, someone who's driven to create in a variety of ways, whether it be a lesson plan, a student experience, or something like a podcast or a book. Mm. And then a drive to make my mark uh, forces me to not quit when I ultimately fail all the time. So I, mm -hmm. it's a unique set of circumstances, but I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't change it. Yeah. So it's like you, you've been able the the thing that we all get to see along the journey is uh, the, the reframing of those of failures and I think that's what yeah. a lot of teachers do. Uh, it's the facilitating of, uh, of not letting up because the default for student is to let go. And especially with some, uh, such a pivotal, vital, uh, healthy uh, realm of viewing, especially when it comes to thinking and, and especially in this end of capturing of thought in the form of writing. I think that's so important that you're doing that. And it's so cool that such unlockings unveiled you in a position where, where you get to daily face that for the students with you know, face that with the students so that they may see that for themselves and be able to be, to be able to carry forth through those potentialities of letting go instead, hold on, just look, just watch, look, follow this onward you see you got it you got it keep going i'm gonna put it on my wall and then who's next you know i think that's uh what how, how i'm curious is that something that came to you in terms of putting things on the wall and creating and and how vital did you find that within the culture sphere of the classroom uh putting up the work the uh, there's i mean I, this is the stuff that I really love talking about because I'm such a nerd for this craft really. But, um, you know, like every teacher, I think, you know, except there's a few rock stars that I've met that didn't go through this phase and I'm incredibly jealous of them. Um, but you know, every teacher kind of starts off bad, right? Like we don't really, <laughs> we don't really understand how to control kids in a way that is healthy, right? We can, we kind of rely on dominance approach and, you know, eventually we learn that that doesn't work. You have to have a different tool set and, um, we wonder why, you know, like I used to stare at my kids and be like, why aren't my kids reading? And I had a literacy coach who changed how I taught. She essentially looked at me and goes, well, what are you giving them to read? And I realized that I was just giving them worksheets. And I was like, well, I feel like my kids aren't reading anything. She was like, well, what happens if we let them read? What happens if we let them choose their own books? And, you know, she knew the answer, but she was guiding me to it like a good mentor. Wow. And so the, the, this reading thing though, this idea of, letting kids self-select text, what I ended up realizing and developing over time was, man, if I let their interests drive where they're going to be, they're not going to not want to read because they're accessing material that is relevant to them for whatever reason, mm. right? My job then becomes someone that can teach within that. That became, it became less about crafting lessons that would get kids to answer the right question, 
it became, how can I get them into the act of reading and then teach them through that? And this evolved, th that came first. The reason I'm telling you that is because that was like step number one. Step number two in writing became, I, I taught writing very basic, right? It was like, here's a, an assignment. Here's what you write. We're going to do outlines. We're going to do all of this. And as someone who was writing far before I became a teacher, you know, writing creative, creative writing, poetry writing, songwriting, fiction, all that good stuff. I, Which I love day, your poetry, just, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, I was, I, I, one day I, I realized, I was like, this isn't what writers do. I was like, I don't, I don't outline everything I write. I don't sit here and create this uh, obnoxious plan. And I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't put on a timer and only write for that and never stop and never get distracted. I was like, I turn on music. I get in the vibe. I think I wander, I look around and it's a chaotic state. That's right. Like anyone, like you can tell who writes and who doesn't because they realize that writing isn't what the movies show us is writing, which is some struggled. You might be struggling, but like, you know, not this person just sitting there like, you know, putting together their book and they're just haunted and they're creating this great work. No, most writing is kind of horrible and you just work on it over time. And uh, eventually your horrible writing becomes less horrible. So you have to work on it less, but it's always a process and it's always messy it's like the, it's the creative process you're you're literally taking clairvoyant thoughts and making them physical onto a page there's nothing simple about this process right so what ended up happening is when i released from kids in their writing and i'm skipping some steps here but once i released from them and allowed them to write what they wanted to they started writing at incredible rates they were like i want to do this and then when i was like hey you know what we're writers real real writers publish I was like, let's publish. So what is published uh, Chastain? The releasing. Know, let's, yeah, the releasing, the, the creative process of getting something out there, right? Yeah. The, the number one enemy to creativity is someone who won't release anything ever. Uh, it is, uh, it's, it's something that I fight a lot. I'm comfortable with it because I, I like the process of putting something out there, letting it fail, putting it out there, letting it fail. Um, some people don't get past that, but you can't fix what isn't, put out you can't go to the next thing if you never release the next thing so when I started letting my kids do that though what happened was is they're like oh this isn't this is cool and then I was like oh you know what let's highlight some of these pieces so I was like we always have data walls I was like I hate data walls I don't care about the data wall so I was like let's put I was like if I have to put my data wall up there I'm gonna put the, these pieces all around the wall I'm gonna put so many pieces that they write that you're not even going to care about the data because you're going to see all this writing on the wall, poetry, nonfiction, whatever they decide to write. And when I decided to do that, kids, they knew it would happen at the end of every six weeks. So every uh, grading period here, they would come in and they would just go straight to the walls because they wanted to see what pieces made it, what pieces got up there, who did it. And uh, the, ener the energy changed, but what ended up happening more importantly is that they started becoming phenomenal writers because they were writing so much, creating and going on to the next thing. So I just, when I started focusing on what real processes are and kind of push school off to the side, the kids blossomed and it's been incredible to see. Well, you know, this uh, gives me the opportunity to highlight one poem that, that I really wanted to, that I was really smacked with uh, out of many, but I wanted to bring up one, uh, these kids. We drive slow in school zones to protect the future. Yet we rush to test even their bones. It's putrid. 
It's stupid. Why do we ask our students to live life with prudence, but then we punish their shortcomings by taking them out of music? They see us, you know. They hear us, too. You think that kid, yeah, that kid doesn't know what you think about him? You think you hide your disdain? It's plain, I can tell you that, written in paint right on your face. I know, because I've seen it, too. In class and in the mirror. I've been on both sides, behind enemy lines. I've seen my life through a teacher's eyes and how they check my mind through a computer's eyes are the ones that spent the time to look at my lines. And I gotta say, I knew who took the time. I knew who thought about mine. I knew who went home at night and thought about how I was just a poor tyke. And I knew who went home and thought about what to do to make it right. And I know my kids know it too. They see it. They see who works for them, who talks with them, who listens to them. They see who puts a stain on who they are and who comes to clear the window. Pain, you see, comes from more than the physical. It gets taken from the mind and applies to the lyrical. The injustice of it all. It's like a song sang too many times, a wrong that pangs through every rhyme, a drum that beats too many lives. Their lives. So I'm tired of hearing about these kids. These kids don't respect us. They've got no work ethic. They don't care about learning. All they want is to sit on their phones and beg for likes like a sinner in mourning. You see, they come into our lives, these kids. They come in and when it's over, these kids. They bear so much on their shoulders, these kids. They keep wrinkled work in their folders, these kids. They see the world being crushed by boulders, these kids. They see the endless war and dying soldiers, these kids. They see through the facade that smolders. So I'm tired of hearing about these kids. I want to see them, free them, unchain them from a system that doesn't feed them. I'm tired of hearing about these kids, the ones who feel like they're lost to school and have nothing to look forward to once this hell is done. And I'm tired of hearing about these kids from the mouths of people who don't take the time to see them for who they are and who'd rather be the student dad with grades rather than lift them up with the work that matters. And I'm tired of hearing about these kids who don't share your values because your values are what put us here in the first place. And I don't know if you've looked around lately, but the sky isn't blue anymore. The grass isn't green anymore. The stars don't shine and the wind doesn't sing anymore. Until we meet these kids where they are Until we support these kids for who they could be Until we step aside and let them show us where to go Until we admit we're lost and no map and no light to see And I'm tired of hearing about these kids I want to hear from them The way you crafted it, the video, the, the echo, everything Every element, it was like, ah, thank you, ah, thank you and I wanted to highlight a, uh, a takeaway from it that I think encapsulates everything you just said about uh, what, the, what your discoveries uh, have extracted within the students. And that was that this poem was a, is, I would describe it as 
the detailed outlinings through an eye of the students, and especially with the phrase, they see the facade that smolders. And I started thinking about the fading impressions, you know, the fading impressions of even writing, you know, like, hey, let's read something. And then after a while, it's like, well, the reason why I don't like it, because they smoldered what they thought what writing would be or anything would be or interaction would be relationships may be uh, being social, um, being civil in the classroom may be or having respect to another teacher may be. And and then you said, I want to hear from them. And I, I love that because there was the whole theme was, you know, these kids, these kids, these kids, all these kids, everyone's talking about these kids and how much there's a sense of like, you know, oh my goodness, can we just get these kids out of here, that vibe? And it ends with, I, I want to hear from them. And I, I, I'm inspired just as Mr. Ron Clark has inspired me <laughs> uh, and as well as many educators. It very much captured that spirit. Um, uh, if you're familiar with that book or that movie, it's a, it's a great movie. And I think there's a lot of parallel um, I, I'm curious, what, what is that along the lines of what you would recognize in the students in really facing their, their, that, uh, that diminishing effect instead of, it's like calling forth from the diminishing? Yeah, like are you asking if they if, if they're kind of, like if I'm calling forth from the diminishing or if they are? Oh, I feel like, would you say that what you're doing is you're creating a space so that they may recognize they can actually call it forth? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Because what's, you know, that piece, These Kids was written when I, uh, I wrote it during a time where I just came off being a literacy coach at a campus that's what that I didn't fit in well for a variety of reasons, but I heard as a literacy coach, I walked into a lot of school or a lot of classrooms and a lot of schools, but I visited and I listened and I would just hear, you know, when I walked into a classroom that felt great and kids were clearly learning and they were excited to be in there and the teacher was excited. They always talked about what they knew about the kids. They always spoke about mm. them as if, like as if they were just real people that they were working with. And when I went into classrooms that weren't effective and they were, the kids weren't happy to be there. And if they were happy to be there, they're only happy because that was the class they got to wander around because the teacher couldn't tell them to sit down. Um, those teachers would end the, they, they said those phrases like these kids and mm. they would be like, these kids won't listen. They don't respect you heard us, that right? phrase. I, those, yeah, those lines are directly from the mouths of people that are quite frankly, I mean, they're ineffective. And the reason why they are is because they, they aren't listening to the kids. And one thing that I've learned during this process of giving kids freedom, because that, this is the number one thing I get asked about. They're like, well, how do you manage, how do you manage freedom? How do you manage kids having the choice in what they read? Shouldn't they read specific things? That's how we've always been taught. And how, well, how do you teach a kid how to write if they're writing whatever they want? And they go into all of this and I really get the English teachers and some and some uh, non-English teachers when I say I don't I don't really teach grammar in specific ways. Like, well, you got to teach grammar. They got to know diagramming sentences and they have to know all of this. And it's the whole point of that though is 
when you trust these young minds to do what they're wired to do, the human brain is designed to learn. It is, it is literally built to get information, process it, and go forth from there. So all the educator needs to be in most instances, and this is, this is all where I'm talking about, like people that don't have learning disabilities that get in the way of those processes and everything like that. So just your general population, their, their brains are wired to grow and to get this, but what they need are catalysts. You know, if you keep, Hmm. you know, go back to Plato's cave, you know, if you keep people in a cave and you only show them one thing through this tiny little hole, that's all they're ever going to know. So it's, it becomes less about, I'm going to shove this in your, I'm going to shove this, um, the great Gatsby in your face until you understand why the green light is red across the sea, or I can show them that there is this field and I can go, Hey, check this out. Oh, Hey, check this out. And then as they start learning, Hey, you need to stay away from those berries are kind of dangerous. Just, you know, you got to cook them first before you go there as you're guiding them, they end up having, they end up being able to travel farther and farther without you. And that is the entire goal of this. And here's the thing it's biologically wired into them. So when it starts happening, it looks like magic. Like to me, I was like, I can't believe this is actually working. Now I had to put in, it didn't work out. I didn't just say, okay, you're free. And then things worked out amazingly. I had to create structures and I had to be create expectations and I had to work with them as people. But in terms of how much freedom they have, it comes down to how good of a guide can I be for them in their journey across whatever it is that they're trying to do. And you know what kids soar, man, that I, there's my favorite thing, not to, plug a book but the please the book, plug, the plug, next, plug the next book that's coming out is i'm excited for it because i feature over 30 of their pieces in the book and we and i let them like be a part of this whole process because Stay i really tuned. see them as writers i think yeah but i think they are they're some of the most I, and i taught them for two years we left during covid we came back in person uh but i've had mm. so i had them for two years so we had like this bonding experience through a pandemic and we went through the craziest school year but what we did wow. is we wrote a lot and we read a lot of writing they helped me in some of my writing I mean, these are seventh graders like and we're like this is this is kind of unheard of and i think the only reason why i've had so much success is because of trusting the freedom and then listening to the kids and not being a tyrant over them yeah wow thank you for sharing that you know i i thought i would riff on a night a thought that's kind of a uh like extract extracting into like our world like as adults facing reality isn't it crazy uh in the middle of all this you know when we were their age these such portals of technology allowance could not be you know, like say a pandemic happened when we were their age, right? And all right, we're going to read, right? And all this kind of stuff uh, or the, the surfing of the internet space. It, what, a, what, a, what a wild west it was, but also at the same time, uh, uh, just a vast portal. As now, like you said about, uh, you know, check out this other way of viewing and beware of this, be sure to cook it. You know, I really liked how you use that analogy. I think that's uh, something that uh, our generation uh, adults are facing when it comes to swimming in this newfound virtual pool of, of reality. You know, just the fact that you and I were able to intersect um, through an individual that mutually we follow the works of, 
I think that's so cool. I mean, it's it's such an invisible realm that it 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 it's yet it allows things to become true. And and it's so true to the point that you and I know that we're having this conversation, not just speaking to a glass. <laughs> you know, right, right. what what because for, I'm very curious from being in the front lines with these future people. <laughs> What what what's your opinion and and how they are processing these times these weird times where you know they don't know what's going on they don't know why people are over here are going this way and that way and they're saying oh they're they're expressing these you know contentious uh, uh, tribes of that many people recognize as divisive to them they're just like I don't know I'm just a kid man. Uh, what 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 what's your what are your what's your observation of like their eyes and what what it's like for them and for you? I don't know. I mean, I I know a lot from talking to them, and you know, we have every day when the lesson starts. I go or once the lesson's kind of done, I go out and I confer with them. Uh, writing conference is essentially where you just sit down and you talk with their writing, you talk about their pieces or whatever. But in those conversations, you know, you have a lot of interactions. I had over a thousand conferences. I only know that because I have an iPad where I track all of them. Um, that's a thousand conversations with my 58 kids I had this year um, of just talking about life and learning and the one thing that I think is true for all kids is that they're kids, right? Like they, you said it yourself, like they're, they're, they're so absorbed in their own just world that a lot of them don't, they, they don't really think beyond that all the time. And if they do, it's usually because it affects them somehow, right? Yeah. Like, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking about the job market because my dad lost his job, right? They, mm. So they might have those connections, but um, I will say that they... That might be what they talk about, but a lot of them do process stuff on a deeper level, especially in middle school, right? I, I, got, I saw these kids at the beginning of sixth grade when COVID wasn't even a thing to having them in seventh grade during a pandemic uh, throughout the whole year. So a lot of them, and, and the, you know, the racial tensions that went down because of George Floyd in the summer and you know that stuff doesn't that stuff doesn't not affect, <laughs> sorry. They're not going to ignore it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's there. And, you know, I work at a campus where we're over 50% Hispanic. We're about 20% black and then the rest are white. And uh, we have a lot of kids from like uh, the, the Congo and from some Pacific islands and stuff what like part that. part of Texas? So, I'm in San Antonio. Uh, DFW. So not too far from you. Okay. Well, Just right up north a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll run into each other at a convention one day, but yeah. Um, the, so th th these communities, right? This isn't mm. distant from them. This is very connected to some of their experiences, you know, uh, and they, they would talk about this and they would process this. And I heard a lot of race conversations that came up in our classroom not always handled the best. I mean, adults don't even handle them the best and kids definitely don't. But what I've realized <laughs> is that kids are so not ingrained in political ideologies yet to to be so divisive when they speak when they when kids are divisive they're trying to be mean right they're trying to it's another it's it's, it's a lot more from within themselves than it is like trying yeah. to be representative of a like a collective yeah it's very yeah, <laughs> yeah it's very uh animal like right it's just like no this is my territory and i need you to feel that <laughs> um adults on the other hand are very ideological we have political sides sometimes to the extreme where 
you already know what you believe. You already know which station you're going to believe before you even hear what each station has to say, mm. right? Those are our times. Kids don't live in that world. They might a little bit, you know, they're hearing their parents talk and they're, they're, they're in that and they experience it from that. But in, in general, kids are very open to different ideas and they're very open to talking and they're, they're not, they're not a, of the mind that they can't voice their opinion or that they don't have a position to voice what kids are usually uh, kept back from is sharing their voice. So, and they learn that in school, right? We, hmm. we don't let kids talk about things that are uh, that might not go with the norm. We don't, we don't even give them the option. We say, Hey, you're going to write about this specific topic hmm. or better yet. We give them, three topics that we chose. So they still have choice, but these are our three topics. And so kids, what they learn over time is they learn that, oh, well, I just got to keep all that inside. I shouldn't be talking about it. And then what happens Ooh. is they become their own echo chamber over time. They eventually become adult that becomes a larger echo chamber. And now they believe something and they've never questioned a dang thing in their lives because they never voice something loud enough to be challenged in the first place. So when, when going beyond this idea of just letting kids write because it's it, it's therapeutic it gets them to process their lives and everything. And also detach like the detaching of yeah. that initial thought because i'm sure you've seen where uh, i'm curious what your thoughts on this uh you know uh, when writers are going for it like i've experienced i i've never written ever and i started writing ever since uh, ever since the world ended and i was like uh i felt i felt an inclination i feel like that book over there that i bought two years ago maybe three years ago just scream at me like, hey, just so you know, this is blank, just so you'd know. I, for some reason, I'm just letting you know, for some reason, I feel like I have to let you know, hey, it's blank. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll start. Oh, I just started every day just flowing with it, right? But I found myself, and I'm curious what you think, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, that initial thought, it's, sometimes it's a, uh, we don't want to let go of it. And then by letting go of it, more clarity comes from it. And it's mm -hmm. by just allowing ourselves to just happily erase and because we're making room for the, the, the more clear, juicy gold, perhaps, would you say that's kind of the thing that you see? Uh, how would you how would you describe that's what's happening in their creativity and, and also not being trapped in those echo chambers? Well, you know, you could almost think I feel like you could uh, think about this in the sense of. You know, people have always asked, you know, when you go look at those early cave paintings, right, the most ancient ones that were around a long time ago, you know, people put their hands on it, right? What caused people to do that? What caused people to make their mark, to, to draw things and to eventually evolve into written language? You could almost imagine just the human brain trying to process all this information and it was like i need it i need it to come out in some way so we started you know with this and that was that released something in us we're like oh what does that mean and so we started playing with all of these uh symbols and eventually you have written language and all this other stuff. so you could yeah like you could see that pathway of it's the brain's way of processing all of this so when it comes down to writing creating clarity for someone like you who hasn't really written and then you start doing it all of a sudden you're like oh my god like that's not really what I think, or maybe, oh, this is kind of what I think, but this isn't really a formulated thought, or why do I even think this? I have never even questioned why this is a belief I have. Those things happen, um, I think, in part because it just allows us to, you know, writing is processing. Writing is reflection. Writing is mm. creation. It's all of these things. There's a it's book pause. called... 
Yeah. There, there's a book called The Acts of Teaching Writing by Joyce Carroll. And in the intro, she says, writing is the most rigorous activity we will ever give children and we take all of their power away from it. Um, so I think as adults, for people that discover writing as adults, it's almost like, I don't know, like, I feel like it would feel like being robbed because you realize how beneficial it is oh, once you kind of that's get past it. exactly how I would describe it. You know, when I started doing it, I started recognizing why was I wasting my time thinking I couldn't? Why was I wasting my time thinking that it was just something, oh, I'm a TV watcher. I remember thinking these thoughts as a kid, like, oh, I don't write or read. I'm a TV yeah. watcher. I got TV. I remember thinking that and I remember even saying that to teachers and they would be like, well, I'm like looking back and I'm like, what, you know, what do you mean? Well, <laughs> and it's, it's just so, it's so powerful to, to recognize that. And uh, if, if, if we may uh, shift gears here, I'm very curious, sure. spe especially from the train of a teacher and uh, uh, so, you know, that first time you're in front of in sitting in the classroom, right? I would describe writing the same way. Like the first time you have a bunch of kids, it's all blur. Like, whoa, what's going on? And especially through the eyes of now, how, what could you see within that blur now? And also not just in teaching, but perhaps even in writing. I I, I like that connection to how the, the beginning of, of teaching is kind of like when you first start writing. I could see that because, you know, when I first started writing, I remember it was so funny because I wrote a little, like I wrote songs and I wrote shorter pieces. But when I was like, once I graduated high school, my wife and I moved out together or she was my girlfriend then, but we moved out together. And I remember sitting there talking about, you know, just the, how much I love books and wanting, I was like, you know what, I, maybe I could write a novel. Right. And I just started kind of talking about it. And she was like, just do it. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that was something I could just do. So, you know what I mean? And like, I started typing away and I had no idea. I was like, you know, I've been reading for a long time and I had written stuff. But when you start thinking about a, a new form of creation, I didn't know how to get from, you know, the first sentence to the second sentence, let alone chapter one to chapter 50. Right. It's this very confusing process. It's also kind of like, you know, to use a music analogy is, you know, when you like as a drummer and someone that's been drumming his whole life, I can hear just the structure of music. Right? I'm like, oh, this is the verse. This is the chorus. Mm. This is the verse. This is the bridge. Right. And so I can know like basic songs almost automatically. And I know kind of the typical beats. You know, if I turn on any 80s radio station, for instance, I could probably play every single one of those songs just hearing it for about five seconds. That's not Fitting in yeah, it's just the style of music, right? Now there's obviously more advanced music that I can't do that to, but it's a general guide. Now, my wife has never really played an instrument. She doesn't, like, I'll know when, like, a cymbal hit's coming just from a song I've really never heard. And she's, she's asked me before, she's like, how do you know? Like, how do you know, like, even <laughs> the instruments you're hearing or, like, the, the parts of the drum set? Like, I, it's just... I'm internalized to it, right? But that's foreign to her. So in terms of teaching, you know, when I was stepped in, it was entirely foreign. I didn't know, you know, I was, I was like still racking my brain around bell work. I was like, I don't even know how to give something good at the beginning of a class to get them engaged. Um, and so it's going from beginning of a lesson to the end of a lesson, 
I had no time management. I had no structures in place. Now I had, luckily I had guiding teachers and mentors that didn't let me fail alone. There was a lot of failure, but the, you know, they were always there to kind of give me a pointer and I just listened and I, I was never afraid to open, be open about this failure because I, that's the creative process. I had written so many things that had failed before that I, you know, I had started podcasts before Teach Me Teacher that failed, right? That no one will ever hear because they, no one listened, right? They were, they were just, they were just creations that I made and failed. So I, that's how I treated teaching my principal at the time. She said, it my offered info. Skill, yeah. She said my number one skill was that I'm adaptive, that like instantly, like I just kind of move on to the next thing. Like I don't dwell and kind of, you know, lick my wounds very long. And that process though, is eventually I started learning, you know, what a classroom felt like. Right. And I was open to the kids and I said, Hey, class hasn't been going good for the last three weeks. Has it? No. Cause kids always know, right. They know the classes that are not going well. And I go, all right, so this is classroom 2.0, right? And then a few weeks later, all right, we're going classroom 2.5. And, you know, and I just did that over and over you again. You actually told them? Like, yeah, I straight up told them. Um, I, I apologized for when, like, you know, one of my, I, I was a horrible classroom manager, so I ended up yelling at kids a lot for no reason and just stuff that I, I, I don't yell ever now. And it, it's, But because you didn't have those, those set, you found yourself having to uh, resort to that. Yeah, like that's the when when you're yelling at kids, unless it's an extreme circumstance, you are generally uh, you have skipped over other valid steps to get there. You don't creating positive relationships, creating standard standards for your trust. classroom and expectations and procedures and trust and building that with kids. You don't have to yell at them. Uh, and, but that's, I didn't know that. I mean, I was a yeller for probably a good two years before I developed <laughs> an ability to not do that. But so yeah. in terms of clarity, I, I started being able to lesson plan knowing, okay, so I'm going to need to break this up because I'm going to be talking for far too long. So I need to get them up and move them around. Right. Ooh, um, you're able to gain an, a, a, uh, like an insight, like a inside baseball. Like you have someone that doesn't yeah. understand baseball. Another one is like, well, hold on. I'm looking at the pitcher and he's giving the signals. He's getting this and that he's, he's looking over there, look at a base. And the other one's like, how do you see all this stuff? Don't you watch baseball? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly right. And at first it was obvious too, right? I was kind of like the pilot flying the plane while showing them what I was doing in the, in the cockpit. Right. I was like, you know, it was like, I had the door open. And I was like, hey, I don't know what this button does, but let's try it, right? And then eventually what happened is I was able to, Map it you know, hide some of that stuff. I was able to just kind of put a drape and that way kids came in. They didn't realize anymore that really like class was actually happening. It was, oh, we're reading and writing and we're exploring ideas. And yeah, there's some tests that pops up every once in a while. And there's some data that comes here and there. But for the most part, that stuff is so gone that they don't even think about it. They're, they're so caught up in the classroom. And then it, it works even better. When I started, I was like, I love music. Why don't I listen to music in my classroom? Bought a stereo, play modern music pretty much all the time during writing, let them have their earbuds in because it was those things that I found out. The more I made it feel less like school, the more I was able to do that. But all of that started is this slow process of going, okay, bell work. What do I do in the first five minutes of class? And then slowly getting good enough to where I could run a class. Just to get a hint, what like what track? What's this, the vibe and the, what kind of music? 
lo-fi what's oh, the, what's the I, kind of thing no sometimes i do that but in all honesty i list we listen to the the stuff that they listen to i put pandora on um and i put it on censored right so it it doesn't drop any of the yeah. stuff now some of the songs are still a little bit too graphic i mean they're seventh graders anyway it's whatever they, they're dancing right. to it on tiktok what's the difference if it comes <laughs> on the radio but they're writing you know basically <laughs> Yeah, and we would like I just listen to them and talk about the artists they like, and I just make you know Pandora creates its own stations based on them. So I just make a bunch of them, and sometimes you know we'll put on if we're feeling good, I'll put on the the you know the Michael Jackson uh, station, and that'll play all the oldies. You know that'll bring out all uh, kinds of good songs with them, and the kids too. Give them Michael nutrition. Jackson's timeless, <laughs> by the way. The Jackson man, they I was. I'm always shocked that every year kids like that they know Billy Jean, they know all that stuff, man. Um, but we'll listen to a lot of their music and kids that don't want to listen to that. They put in their headphones, but most of the kids love it because here's another thing. It's another class builder. So, you know, something comes on and it's, you know, one of the artists that kids really like to begin this year was pop smoke. I don't know if he's a rapper. I don't know if you know anything about it, but he has this one song that I was like, I like this. I started listening to it at the gym. Right. And so eventually I start rapping with them or like singing or whatever it is. And so it becomes this thing. A song comes on, I'll turn it up for a good 20 or not 20 minutes, 20 seconds. And we'll just vibe for a minute. And then we're like, all right, we go back and it goes back to normal. That's but awesome. like, I would have, man, if I was a kid and some, and like my teacher just started like jamming like Led Zeppelin or something like that, like it would have changed my life. Wow. You know, I, I thank you for sharing those insights because I think that's so important for any educator who happens to be listening, you know, to, to view through the eye of other educators and, and, and perhaps even recognize, am I creating kind of that kind of space? Like I'm seeing that within myself. I'm like, how, how can I, how can I allow the, the fingerprint of the students while we're in a, uh, we're in a mutual exchange of this is your space too. And thank you for allowing me, the teacher, to facilitate you not giving up on yourself along those lines. Yeah. I think that's so cool. It's it's so much fun. And I've had, you know, I, I take it like a couple steps farther. I, you know, I grew up with some of the teachers around me, you know, we're all kind of the same age and came in at roughly the same time and developed as teachers at the same time. And, uh, you know, we would just crank up our in passing period, right? You know, kids are being shuffled in this hallway. We have the oldest building in our district. So, you know, the hallways are small, very factory, you know, everyone just goes this way. And we would just open the door up, crank the music up. We have our lights on. I had, uh, you know, like the lasers kind of going around the room. And so I'm having my door open. Kids walking by are like, you know, they're looking in. I'm like, I want to club. Class. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's like my vision was I want... I was like, why does, why does it have to be from class to class? I was like, I don't care what they're doing across the hall. I don't care what they're doing in another classroom. I was like, when they're walking by here, I either want them to want to be in my room or I want them to be excited to get to my room. You know, you don't have, in schools, you don't have tardy problems because kids don't want to be in school. If kids are taking forever to get to your classes because you're not creating an environment that kids want to be in. And so I try to get that energy going, that excitement. So they come in there and then here's what happens. I get to push them harder than anyone else because they want to be in the class. They know if things start acting up, if we start not doing our work, if we're slacking off, if we're using this, if we're abusing this freedom, mm. guess what? The fluorescent lights come on, the music goes off. 
Chastain sitting in a chair now, you know, we're going to, we're going to do this. And they, sometimes it happens like, Oh no, we don't want that. And I go, boom, it all comes back on. I'm like, all right, let's get to work then. And so you get to make the choice. (laughs) That's right. And they're always going to choose that. They're going to choose the room that has the music and the lights and the, and the fun vibe, because who doesn't that class might be the only time that that kid gets to actually relax and, Mm. and, not feel the social pulls of like, well, I gotta, you know, remember I gotta gotta say this stuff. Like, no, no, no. We got enough in the room. And I, it's, I, I know it's frowned upon to be like, well, class shouldn't be a place to relax. You know, it, it, why not? Like the Greek philosophers, what did they do? Like they sat around in their robes and ate grapes and just talked it willy nilly out to the open and thought and they wrote and they were better for it. Like you don't, you don't work better the more stress you have right like especially if you're a kid so to to lower that filter for them if i even a little bit i find that they learn at at a deeper level because they're not worrying about other things and perhaps if that stress is there it's because they want to impose it on themselves it's like you know like i'm you know we've experienced it right i could i could imagine yourself you know staying up late because you want to make sure the lesson plan is you know, is exactly where it needs to be or the classes set up the way it needs to be. And, and yes, it's a stress because you got family puzzling everyday life, but it, it's, it's not that it's being imposed on you. You, you're, you're embracing it fully. I, I think that's so, that's so special, man. I think, you know, thank you for your service, man, out in the field with kiddos. And I really like the, the parallel that you brought about, uh, that we're with, we were riffing on the 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 idea of writing and at first it's a blur and uh in the classroom uh you know we Mm -hmm. could find ourselves uh you know being you know having to wield the yelling uh machine within and it's like wait wait something's missing here and i want to draw it to something that i think we're within the cultural landscape that we're all sharing uh but it shares parallel in terms of that i i'm wondering are we facing a a like growing pains, like an, a, a, an initial flash of virtual reality where we don't know how to express culturally as, as eloquent and justified thoughts may be across the spectrum of expressions. It's a, there's, there's that proclivity to, for virtual yelling, <laughs> you know, for, you know, um, like I was just scanning through my Facebook you know, where threads get, you know, let's just say within friends and all across different friends who don't know each other. And they get yeah. really, they get quite, uh, let's just say, uh, the civility is not as present. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. reflective as um, in like our first times teaching where we find ourselves yelling or, you know, kind of like on that forceful side. And I was like, wait, wait, something is missing here. And uh, a thought came to mind and I wanted to share it with you and just ask what is it that comes to mind and the thought is what may social media bear let me rephrase how may social media bear proclivity to ultimately further divide even with the most justifiable points of acknowledgement of today's times May we continually invite ultimate, may we continually invite ultimately through outcomes that unite. What comes to mind? 
I don't know. Social media is scary, right? Because it's new. And it's so, it's so manipulative. Uh, I, don't, I don't decry, you know, I don't subscribe to the idea that social media is an evil. I, I like uh, Gary V's comment about it. People always ask him about social media and what it is. And he goes, social media is not bad. He goes, it's a mirror. He goes, mm. it shows us who we are as people. And if you don't like what you see, there's probably a reason for that. And I think that's true. You know, I think there is some manipulation. You know, there's definitely some algorithmic issues that we're having to work Leanings. ourselves through because, yeah, just because the thing, you know, it's quickly to fall. You can quickly fall into echo chambers. And a lot of people don't realize that that's, they're, they're not just seeing the good stuff. They're being shown the stuff that targets them demographically. Targets like them. Yes. Um, and, and they, a lot of people don't even realize that that's happening, right? Because they're living um, their which life. Which is why, yeah, well, they're living their life, but it's also, you know, they were, they're at an, they're, they're older, right? A lot of older people don't realize that that's being done. And so a lot of younger people don't either. I think our generation and kind of that, the generation that kind of grew up with this advancing social media and kind of grew up with it. I think we have a unique insight into seeing kind of remembering what the world was like early enough and then seeing it compared to what it's like now with social yeah. media. We saw the grip. Um, and, we saw the grip. Right. And we, I think that's a unique standpoint that only kind of the millennial generation or Gen Z, whatever has, um, that doesn't mean we understand the technology any better, but I think that's an interesting intersection. So I, I, you know, I don't believe it's evil. And, and I think it even exposes, uh, you know, I think what it does for, I think what the next generation is going to do. Okay. Let's, let's go to that. I think what's going to happen as technology advances, as technology becomes even more accessible, as social media becomes even more, uh, even more powerful in its ability to connect us in a variety of ways with the rise of VR and being able to be in the same room without being in the same room. And what does that, what does that mean to social spaces and, and business and everything else? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that gets wrapped up. What does that mean for politics? You know, if we could zap our way through VR to experience the horror that's happening with Israel and Palestine, we might have different views rather than reading, uh, you know, uh, just one hundred character. Yeah. Instead of reading a tweet from someone and deciding that's how we believe about it. Right. What if, it, yeah. And so I, I think the people that are the kids that we're teaching now, I think it's imperative that we teach them to use their voice um, in ways that are effective for what they need, both personally and socially, because what they're going to drive these companies to do is they're going to drive them to be better at what they do. Now, whether that leads to more positivity or negativity, I got to go back to Gary V's viewpoint of we see the social media becomes what's being, what the culture is. It's just mirroring it. Uh, to, it's putting a spotlight on it. So if, if we grow as people, if we keep listening to, uh, others, if we keep breaking echo chambers, if we keep jumping on podcasts with people that live in other cities and that, you know, if, if we keep having these things, then I think that the, the general good outweighs the bad. You know, I, one more important thing, I think I've mentioned evolution like four times on this show. The, the one thing to remember is that our brains are wired to, to seek and retain the negative more than the positive, because mm -hmm. if you, you know, if, if you know, there's water next to you, 
or if, like if that's something you have, you're not going to think about it as much. And it's not, it doesn't really cost you anything because it's like, oh, it's right there. But if you forget about the poisonous snake in the bushes, you're dead. So our brains are wired to hyper focus on the negative which is why social media does this, which is why it creates clickbait, which is why it's why it, most of this is caused by just us trying to survive and trying to make sense. This is where tribalism comes from, right? It's a survival mechanic. We're like, well, as long as I'm with my people, you know, the lion's not going to kill us today. And so I think we have to remember that. But I think as as I think that stuff is is isn't hardwired forever. I think you can change the wiring of people. I think you know, we have, there's gurus that do this and there are, you know, there are meditation masters and there are people that have transcended uh, kind of what it means to be trapped in this bubble of human emotion. And I think we're just going to keep doing that as a people. I really do. I'm really hopeful about everything. If you can't mm -hmm. tell, like I really don't have, I really don't have a lot of negativity. I think there's negative things to address and there's definitely some bad in the world, but I think overall we're geared towards the the better the better things in life. Living today is better than living a hundred years ago, without a doubt. Amen. You know, uh, I I have to say thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. Uh, I want to ask one last little question before sure. we go. Share your plugs, man. What where is it that we can find? Thank you so much for your time. You know, uh, everyone. As he's about to share, be sure to uh, follow what he's sharing. And it's, 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 it covers within these topics that we jumped on in depth with other people. And I think it's very important, especially the intersection of thought. Where can we find you, brother? Man, I think the number one place is, uh, if you want to find my work, is teachmeteacherpodcast.com. That'll send you to all the links that you really need to get to. But you can find Teach Me Teacher on Facebook. We have about 52,000 strong over there. Um, you can find me on my more on my more personal Instagram at Teach Me Teacher Host, where I post, you know, about me shaving my beard and regretting it and doing all kinds of stuff. And your wife saying she she misses it. <laughs> that's right. So you know, but you know, Instagram is my more personal one. I'm on Twitter as well, Jacob Chastain underscore. I don't tweet all that often because I think Twitter is kind of a miserable place to be a lot of the times. But I do like engaging over there as well if I'm feeling feisty uh ah. that I over there. but um if if people are more interested in so teach me teacher is my main podcast i have another podcast called craft and draft um which can be found at craft and draft but craft and draft is all about it's just me and my partner uh talking about how we approach the actual literacy classroom so teach me teacher talks about anything that's connected to education uh craft and draft is just her and i bouncing ideas off back and forth planning uh, addressing what it's like to teach literacy in today's world uh, with giving kids independent choice in reading and writing. So those are all my places. I hope people come around. Yeah. Uh, join, join Teach Me Teacher. We have an amazing audience over there. We're all very positive and open about life. Well, allow that curious eye, folks, and be sure to take a peek. And should you feel resonance, which you shall, you're going to find yourself at home. And, you know, of course, while we're here, smash that like button, turn, make it blue, Share with someone that you share vibe with, hit that subscribe button, make it go gray, right? And tap on that notification bell, doing all that YouTube stuff, right? That's right. And you know, here's the question that I want, I, I, I want to toss at you to conclude. 
how may we and I, you really touched base on it which i love and uh and i want to see if we i'm gonna if we can encapsulate it in a couple uh you know in a couple phrases i'm curious what comes to mind it goes like this how may we better be arbiters and advocates for peace in our daily conversations especially during times of tribulations seek truth not to be right Mm. that's my response seek the if you're always looking for what is true i think the your conflicts around whatever you're doing whether you're working with kids whether you're working with adults whether you're working with yourself um i think you're i think it's going to mitigate that stuff if we had more people looking for what's true rather than trying to push um specific sides of an agenda i think we'd be a lot farther in a lot of these hard conversations we're having thank you brother and you know what our kids see it our kids see it, yeah. don't they, huh? Especially when they feel like they, they're being lied to. Like, but sir, that's not true. All right, well, hold on, hold on. And when you mutually seek truth, they respect that's that. That's right. Brother, thank you for your service out and about. Shall we high five it out? Oh, just like that. <laughs>